Most gracious Father, we thank you that your word does your work, that it convicts us, that it pierces the depths of our soul in order that we may turn from our sin, turn from our flesh, and ultimately in order that the Spirit may prevail in our lives. And so we pray, Lord, that as we come to your word this morning, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us a desire to be obedient to you, a desire to be conformed in the likeness of Christ, a desire to submit to the authority of your word in order that we may apply this to our lives. And we pray, Lord, that it would glorify Christ all the more in our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. The Gospel according to John, chapter 1, will be starting in verse 6. And unless you are, unless you've been hiding under a rock, unless you've been living in a cave, uh, unless you are just completely detached from uh, any news outlets, TV, newspapers, online, whatever, you are probably aware of the fact that, uh, that our country just finished what has to have been the most controversial appointing of a Supreme Court justice in the history of our country. Uh, the controversy started when uh, a nominee was, was put forward and a woman came forth with accusations against this nominee, accusing him of criminal conduct some 30 plus years ago. And the problem was that it was very difficult to determine the validity of this woman's accusations because she had never filed a police report. She hadn't protested his appointment to lower courts, nobody and no evidence was able to substantiate her claims, and, so, and her story changed a few times. So it was very difficult to determine the validity of her claims. Now, I'm not here to challenge her claim or to pick a side, on, you know, this side or that side by any means. The woman may sincerely believe that, uh, that he did what she says, and he may, may very well believe that he didn't. Um, but this is why the Bible calls for, uh, for, for witnesses. Uh, the Bible says that, quote, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. That's Deuteronomy 19.15. That's still the standard that, uh, that we should be applying to any kinds of accusations. There needs to be there need to be witnesses, and if there aren't witnesses, most people would say evidence like blood or video evidence or something like that to corroborate somebody's claim. Uh, that can take the place of a witness, but there needs to be two or three witnesses or two or three pieces of evidence. As we continue our study of the gospel according to John, let's remember that John is presenting a case he wants to persuade us of something. He wants us to believe something. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in this, we, might, we may find eternal life in him. And so John is really building what you might call a legal case here. He, he's, he's really ready to present what amounts to being legal evidence in the form of witnesses. Now imagine... 
in this Supreme Court uh, nomination uh, hearing. Imagine if somebody had had been a witness in this case, uh, and and the witness was a prophet sent from God to testify. I mean, this is a person who is is wholesome. They have a clean record. Maybe they're a little bit weird, but they're unquestionably worthy of trust because they seem to have uh, nothing but interest in the truth. Of course, that's that's not what happened. Uh, but imagine if it had. I mean, we would have to think that if this was a prophet sent from God for the sake of bearing testimony, we, we would have to believe this prophet, right? Well, not so fast. Because it's always possible that the senators uh, might have some ulterior motive. They, they might have desired another outcome regardless of the evidence, and actually, if you think about it, this is exactly what happened in the life of Jesus. God sent a man, a man who was the greatest of the prophets, in fact, a man named John the Baptist, to testify about Jesus, to substantiate the claims that John the Apostle has already established that he's already made about Jesus. Remember, John, the author of this testimony, we're talking about two Johns here, so I'll, I'll try to make it clear. John, who, who wrote this this testimony has already told us about Jesus. He, that he's told us that Jesus is fully God, that he's fully man, that he's eternal in being, that he's the creator of all things, and that he's the source of both physical and spiritual life, that he is the full revelation of God, and that as the light, he came into the darkness, and the darkness didn't understand it. Verse 5, the darkness did not comprehend it. Those words serve as the launching point to this next section of John's prologue or the introduction to his testimony. So today we'll be looking at John chapter 1 verses 6 to 13. And the point of this passage is that God's ordained witness testimony about who Jesus is demands that we respond with a verdict of faith in and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. The point of this passage is that God's ordained witness testimony about who Jesus is demands that we respond with a verdict of faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are actually several witnesses that John will present throughout his letter who will testify to who Jesus is. But the first witness is kind of our our star witness. He's commonly referred to as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Uh, So John the Apostle summons his star witness in verses 6 to 8. Let's look at verses 6 to 8 together. He says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. You know, whenever a king or a queen or a president uh, makes their way into an official gathering, their arrival is usually announced by people you would refer to as heralds. In our country, uh, whenever the president comes into, uh, you know, in, into a, a gala or, or someplace uh, where he will be recognized, they'll start playing, you know, hail the chief. And this type of thing is actually something of an ancient custom, although playing the music that, that we hear today, that's, that's a little bit of a new twist on it. But this is an ancient custom. An ancient king would have a herald who would go before him to announce his arrival and to prepare the way. 
And so for the Greeks, they would understand that John the Apostle, John, the John who's writing this, was identifying John the Baptist as the herald, the one who went before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. But John the Baptist was not just any old guy. He wasn't just an ordinary person. In fact, he was a prophet. And John tells us in very clear language that he was specifically sent by God and that he had been sent for a very specific purpose to testify about Jesus, to testify to the light. And why? So that those who hear his testimony might believe as a result of his testimony. And this is the essence right here. In a nutshell, this is the essence of any and every true and faithful Christian ministry. Our purpose, individually and collectively as a church, is the same as John the Baptist. And that is to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. We do that individually as we scatter and we evangelize, and we do it collectively as we gather on Sunday mornings and study God's Word. John the Baptist was a model for all who are in Christ in the sense that his ultimate purpose in life, his highest priority in life, was to point people to Christ, to glorify Christ, and to urge people to believe in Christ. In that sense, you might say that John the Baptist was similar to Peter, who once told Jesus that, that he and, and all the other disciples had left everything that they had behind in order to follow Jesus. Or John the Baptist was like Paul in this sense, who would write to the Philippians, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, from, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's from Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And John the Baptist, if you look at these guys, you know, Peter and, and Paul and all the other disciples and what their priorities in life were, John the Baptist was right in line with them. And our calling as Christians today in the 21st century is the same as theirs. And that is to make Jesus Christ Lord of our lives and in doing so to make him our highest priority in life. Nothing comes before him. John the Baptist was in fact the fulfillment of the final Old Testament prophecy of the, New, uh, of the Old Testament age, which is found in the final book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we read this. God says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now the prophet Malachi uh, was referring to was not going to be Elijah in the flesh. Rather, he was going to be Elijah in the sense that he would have Elijah's faith. He would have Elijah's boldness. He would have his power. He would have his authority. The same authority that Elijah and all the prophets had, and that is God himself. 
And Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. He said that, quote, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, talking about John the Baptist, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. So John the Baptist was the last Old Testament era prophet And he was also the first New Testament prophet sent by God to testify that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the light of the world. So we're going to be examining the verbal testimony of John the Baptist later on in our study. Um, We'll see him also in chapter 1. But just based on what John tells us here in verses 7 and 8, we're given every reason in the world to take his word at face value, to believe what John the Baptist says. In fact, John tells us that there are actually three things about him, all of which render him a credible witness. First of all, look at what we see in verse 7. It says, John was not the light. He came to testify about the light, but John himself was not the light. He wasn't the light, and he knew it. He didn't want the spotlight on him. He didn't want to draw attention to himself. He didn't want to draw people to himself. One of the quickest ways to discredit a witness is if they're witnessing for the sake of gaining attention for one thing, as every parent of two or more kids knows, but also if they're trying to gain anything. John wasn't trying to gain anything. He came simply to testify about the light. He himself was not the light, and he knew it. He was pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the quickest and easiest ways to identify a false teacher is to see what they are trying to draw people to. Are they trying to draw people to themselves? Are they trying to draw them to some form of entertainment, some lesser God? I regret to say that there are many pastors in our day and age who who seem to do that. They're walking a very thin line in an age that is unlike any other in history in the sense that we have megachurches with celebrity pastors and we have podcasts and access to sermons online. This is something for every pastor to take very, very seriously because a faithful pastor, a faithful teacher, simply wants to point people to Christ. They want to preach Christ. They want to die and be forgotten. But Christ be glorified. John the Baptist did not come to draw people or to draw attention to himself. He wasn't the light, and he knew it. And he lived his life in light of that fact, and he ministered in light of that fact. He couldn't save anyone, and he knew it. But he knew somebody who could. That brings us to the second Uh, thing that we should see about John the Baptist, and that is that he was sent by God to testify about the light, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only was he not the light, and he knew it, but he was testifying about the light. John was not the kind of person to just let his life speak for itself. If you've ever heard the saying, uh, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That is nonsense. Can you imagine saying to somebody, uh, give me your phone number, and if necessary, use numbers? 
I mean, it's, it's really that ridiculous. No, when, when that happens, when we just try to let our lives speak for, the, uh, for itself, people become enchanted with who we are. And they don't know what our motivation is. Yes, we want our lives to glorify Christ. Yes, we want our lives to, be, uh, to, be, to reflect the light of Christ in the darkness. But if we don't explain our motivations, if we don't present the gospel in addition to walking the walk, people are just going to draw their own conclusions they're not going to understand it. See, the gospel has power to save. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power unto sal- God's power unto salvation. Your life, your actions, are not the gospel. Now, if you're living the Christian life, growing in faith, growing in holiness, growing in obedience, in a, in a place where, where people can see these things, I mean, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That, that is... A wonderful, wonderful thing. And, and walking the walk is a wonderful thing. And not only is walking the walk a wonderful thing, but I would say that it is a necessary thing if you're going to talk the talk and you need to be talking the talk. I mean, if, if, uh, if you talk the talk but you aren't walking the walk, don't you think people notice? People do notice. And they're not going to listen. But if they see you Growing in holiness, growing in faith, growing in obedience, avoiding worldliness, and you witness to them. How much more likely are they to listen? A lot. A lot. And that is exactly why people were willing to listen to John the Baptist when he testified about the light, when he witnessed about Jesus. The third thing that we need to see about John the Baptist's testimony is that his goal was simply that people would believe in Jesus. His goal was simply that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ. There were no ulterior motives. There was no motive that he was hiding in which he might personally gain from it. No, he actually lost from it. He lost his head from it. He didn't do it for money. He didn't do it for fame or to make a name for himself. To the contrary, his motivations were pure and completely selfless, and in the end, it cost him his life. And as a result of John's testimony, many did follow Jesus. In verses 29 and 30 of this first chapter, we'll see him proclaim, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And then just within a few verses, we see people starting to follow Jesus. We see John the Baptist's disciples starting to leave his side and to follow Jesus instead. John the Baptist would then, uh, in in chapter 3, he would say this to his disciples. He would say about Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. And isn't that the attitude that you and I need to have about Jesus as well. In any given moment, what are you reflecting? You're reflecting something in any given moment. Are you reflecting and conforming to the values of the world? Trying to seek personal gain or popularity or earthly treasure, the applause of man, 
or are you reflecting only the light of Christ as the moon reflects only the light of the sun? Because each one of us is called to witness. Everybody who is in Christ, everybody who is in the true church has the responsibility of witnessing about Christ. But your lifestyle, your, your growth in holiness, your obedience, that, that's all a necessary foundation for your witness. And just as John pointed people to the light, so too, that's our calling. So let's not forget what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Verses uh, 14 and, and 16, he says, You are the light of the world. He's speaking to his followers. You are the light of the world. And he goes on to say, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. There's a lot to say about those verses, but uh, I, I want to point out at least one thing, one implication in here, and that is that there is a way to do good works which bring glory to yourself. Jesus said to do them in such a way that they may point to God. It's both the personal and corporate responsibility of Christians to do what John the Baptist did, to give witness to Christ. And part of that is certainly by doing good works. No question about that. Faith without works is dead. But let us never, ever strive to bring glory to ourselves or credit to ourselves for our good works by not sharing the motivation that we have behind our good works. And that motivation needs to be that Jesus Christ is Lord and that Jesus Christ might be glorified in our lives. So we've seen what John's testimony is in a nutshell. And testimony demands a verdict. And John the Baptist's testimony was, of course, sufficient. It was more than enough for any person to drop any and every other pursuit in life to follow and to put their faith in Jesus Christ. But while some would follow Jesus as John instructed, most would not. Most would not. Quick show of hands, and I'll put mine up first. How many of you have ever grown discouraged with evangelism? Most everybody. Well, if you've grown discouraged in evangelism at any point in your life, pay attention to what we see in the passages to come. Let's look at verses 9 to 11. There was the true light, capital L. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. John Calvin once said, quote, What can be more unreasonable than to draw water from a running stream and to never think of the fountain from which that stream flows? End quote. Think about that for a second. It's a strong quote. See, it's, it's one thing to proclaim that the light has come into the darkness of the world, but it is quite another thing to try to understand 
or to try to explain how it is that even though the light has come into the darkness, the darkness continues and perhaps becomes even darker and more prolific in the presence of this light. John himself was not the light. John the Baptist himself was not the light. He came to testify and to bear witness to the light, which John tells us here, the Apostle John, who wrote this, he tells us it enlightens every man. This light enlightens every man. Now, some translations do get verse 9 really confused. If you compare what we just read from the NASB uh, with the King James, the NASB, verse 9, says, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Uh, Listen to what the, the King James says. It says, That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Very different translations. But what we need to see here is the context of the whole thing. See, John isn't talking about humanity coming into the world. He's talking about Jesus, the Son of God, taking on flesh and coming into the world. Jesus is the subject here. The light is the subject. So the subject of the clause coming into the world, uh, the subject there isn't man. The subject is the light. But we do have to be careful here because while it's clearly stating that all men have light, it's not saying that all men are saved. It's not saying that all people have a saving knowledge or a saving understanding about Jesus. But it is to say that Jesus has revealed enough about God to all men that they are without excuse for their insistence on rebellious unbelief in regards to his son, Jesus. One commentator notes this. He says, quote, The point is that even before his incarnation, the Son of God had seen to it that he had a witness in every human soul, however benighted. End quote. Another commentator says this. He says, quote, in, the for, uh, in this form, the text is a proof text for the, doctrinal, the doctrine of natural revelation, the teaching that God has given all men sufficient illumination to come to him. End quote. So all men, and women, by the way, all people, have light. And so in that sense, you might say that nature itself is a second witness here, or or maybe even a third witness. John the Apostle has made some claims. John the Baptist has made some claims. And what we see here is that nature testifies to God. And so all men have a responsibility because all people have light, so all people have a responsibility before God to seek more light. And so there is no excuse for the fact that human beings steadfastly refuse and persist in rebellious unbelief. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Everybody has a responsibility to seek more light. Everybody has some light. 
Everybody has a responsibility to seek more. Jesus is not just the light. Our translation tells us that He is the true light. The true light. The implication here isn't as much that He's the true light as opposed to a false light, as much as it's implying that He's the complete light. It's talking about fullness. The full, like we would say, you know, uh, you know, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that's what he's saying about the light here. It's the full light, as opposed to partial light. And it was this true light which came into the darkness. The true, full light which came into the darkness. When you think of all the great moments in human history, in the history of the world, what would be the greatest? I mean, maybe you'd say uh, the invention of the wheel, or, or, uh, or fire, uh, or, or what about the colonization of America? What about the Industrial Revolution? What about the advent of the age of science? I mean, I think we can all agree that these, these are all great things. These are all good things, but none of them come close in comparison to the significance of the incarnation of God. When the Lord Jesus Christ, the true light, took on flesh and humbly dwelled among us. These other things are, are great. They, they, have, they have value in themselves. They testify to God's good, uh, good character, good nature, because all good gifts come from God. And for centuries, the pursuit of uh, of scientific understanding was actually done for the sake of gaining a better understanding, a better knowledge of God. But all we can get from these things is partial light. We can understand that when, when there's a beautiful tree, it has to have come from somewhere. And so in that sense, it, it testifies about God. It's, it's light. It's partial light. It's enough to condemn us, but it's not enough to save us because it's only partial light. And so what happens if we pursue, what happens if we worship these lesser partial lights rather than worshiping the true full light? We remain lost in the darkness. And this is exactly what humanity does by nature. They pursue and worship the creation rather than the creator. John says, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. How is that even possible? How, how is that even possible? Why could they not know who he was? How, how could they not know that Jesus was the light? First answer is they didn't want to. They didn't want to know that Jesus was the light. And yet, man has been designed to worship by God. God's design is that we worship, and so man worships. But the object of his worship is whatever his heart desires above all things. So what does humanity worship by nature? Anything and everything other than the God who alone is worthy of their worship. So people turn their jobs into idols, their TVs, their, their personal rights, their money, their things, their country, even their families. And we'd say, well, these aren't bad things, right? I mean, none of these things 
inherently as, as evil or anything, right? No, in, in fact, they're, they're good things. They're gifts from God, and thus they're examples of partial or incomplete light. The question is, where are these things? If we were to, to write out a list of our, of our highest priorities in life, where do these things fall in comparison to Christ? Because isn't it true that you can have all these things, every single one of those things that I just outlined, you could have them all, and yet you can lose your soul. And isn't it true that you can have all these things and still feel miserable? And still feel discontent? Because these things are like water in the stream. They're good, but they aren't the way to peace and blessedness. They're good, but shouldn't they make you wonder about the fountain from which the water flows? They should. Look at verse 10 with me. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Remember that one of the things that we want to do when we read the Bible is look for repetition. We want to look for words and phrases and things like that that get repeated. And we find the word world, cosmos, uh, here three times, repeated three times. The first two times just add to the scandal that we find in the third time. The world did not know him. That's the third usage. But we have to notice that there's a shift in the meaning of the word here. John has been using the word world in reference to physical creation up to this point. But when he speaks of those who did not know him, who did not know Christ, he's speaking of those who hate Jesus, who defy God, who reject God, who are rebellious. Remember, there are at least ten different meanings for this word world. And so we need to be very careful any time we come across the word world in John's text. John 3.16, ring a bell? We need to be very careful with that word. And this is what most of Jesus' ministry looked like. Massive numbers of people following him, witnessing and, and being amazed by his miracles and by the authority with which he taught all along, just there for the ride not really having any real clue as to who he was or what he came to accomplish. Some followed him because he fed them bread. Some followed him because they thought that he was going to be a, a great political liberator, uh, somebody who came to free them from uh, earthly physical oppression, right? Uh, restoring Israel, ethnic Israel, from uh, Roman occupation. No, he was the true light. He was the creator of all things. And they didn't recognize him. Even when they saw what he was doing. Even when they saw him heal people. Even when they saw him make enough bread to feed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. They did not recognize him. They did not know him. That's why God sent John the Baptist as a forerunner. Because without somebody saying, hey, this guy over here, this is the light. This guy, he's the light. Nobody, without that, nobody would have known him. Nobody would have recognized him. Nobody would have followed him. And why is that? How is it possible that the world didn't know, didn't recognize, didn't fall down and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the true light? 
because, first of all, they didn't want to. How many times have you tried to convince somebody of of anything? Something that was just completely obvious to anyone, and yet they refused to change their view. Aren't people funny in that sense? You can present somebody with the facts, and sometimes they won't believe it anyway. It's because they don't want to change their view. They don't want to believe what the truth is. When I went off to seminary, I I did so with the intention of studying classical and evidential apologetics, and I didn't understand this. I I didn't quite have a biblical category for darkness yet as a young Christian. I thought uh, that if I just learned and uh, became able to present uh, convincing arguments supported by convincing evidence for Christianity— Of course, people would believe. I mean, who wouldn't want to believe in Jesus? Was how I was thinking. But as I started having dialogues and discussions, as I was becoming more and more equipped with these arguments, I started to realize that it didn't matter what kind of argument or what kind of evidence I provided, they weren't going to believe. In fact, I I learned to ask a question. What kind of evidence would convince you? And the answer was usually... None. So what am I doing? Why are we having this discussion? Let's just talk about pizza or football or something that has absolutely no significance. Why? Because it's not an issue of the intellect. It's not an issue of the mind. It's an issue of the will. It's an issue of the heart. And so truth, complete and not partial truth, Full truth, true light, is rejected by a mind that has been darkened by sin. Think of it this way. If you were to to go around any neighborhood around here, you'd find that every single house is wired with electricity. Every house is built with electricity flowing through it, more than enough to light every square inch of every house. But what would stop a person from just deciding to constantly keep the lights off? To constantly live in the shadows? To constantly live in the darkness? I mean, it's, it's easy enough to, to go to Walmart or Walgreens and, and buy lights and to come home and plug it in and turn it on. But you can't force a person to do that. And in a similar way, even though the true light, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come into the world and has given light to all people, they love darkness. And so they willfully choose to stay in the darkness, out of the light. Jesus would say in chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Jesus is the true light, the full light, and the true light reveals man's sin for what it is. And humanity hated him for that. The second reason that the world didn't recognize him is because they were spiritually blind. Think about it for a second. If if a person 
uh, who, who is physically blind is in the room and somebody comes in and turns the lights on for them, what difference does that make to the blind person? None, right? And in the same way, when the true spiritual light came into the presence of those who were spiritually blind, it didn't make a difference. They didn't recognize him. They didn't know him. They didn't receive him. His own people. You could boil this down to even his own family. Should have been the first to recognize him. But they didn't. See, humanity isn't just partially blind. We're not partially dead by nature. You know, some people hold the idea that when Adam and Eve sinned and humanity fell into sin, you know, it wasn't spiritual death per se. It was more like a a spiritual comatose. It was more like just a a lower state of of spirituality. So humanity by nature, uh, they would say, is like somebody who's drowning and they need somebody else to throw them a life preserver. And this is where religiosity comes into play. We throw them a life preserver, but it's their responsibility to grab onto the life preserver and to save themselves with it. That is not Christianity. That is not Christianity. It's not the biblical picture at all. The biblical view is that when Adam and Eve sinned, they and all who would come after them as descendants fell into sin. And all of us drowned and sank to the bottom of the ocean. Dead. Dead people don't see Dead people don't respond to a life preserver being thrown in their direction. Dead people just lay there. And the Bible teaches that it's only by the grace of God that any of us are born again. By grace, God reaches down. He lifts us off the floor of the ocean. He breathes new life into us. He gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh. And He puts His Spirit within us to transform us. After the Lord Jesus, the true light, had come into the darkness and was put before men to reveal the fullness of God, humanity responded not by falling to their knees and worshiping Him and adoring Him, but by nailing Him to a cross, crucifying Him, giving Him a sinner's death, even though He never once sinned. Murder. Murder is humanity's response to God's goodness and long-suffering and revelation in Christ. But Jesus rose again. He rose from the grave on the third day. He defeated death to prove that He Himself was the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. He proved thereby that His work was sufficient and that salvation is entirely of Him and it's found only in Him. At one point, 500 people witnessed the resurrected Christ according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. God's ordained witness testimony, including what we've seen, including those 500 people, God's ordained witness testimony about who Jesus is demands that we respond with a verdict of faith in and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me close with two thoughts for you. The first is, because we are spiritually dead, 
by nature. Because mankind is born spiritually dead, nobody seeks God first. Nobody seeks God. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3 say this. Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 3. Psalm 14, 2 and 3 says this. It says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. All. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is not one who does good, not even one. And if you think that sounds hopeless, you're right, it does. And if you let this idea discourage you from evangelism, hold on, because that brings us to the second thought that I want to leave you with, which is found in verses 12 and 13. Let's look at verses 12 and 13 together. John says, John the Apostle says, but as many as received him, Jesus, of course, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Whose will is it that we be saved? It's God's will. It's God's will. And this introduces us, uh, introduces us to another primary theme in the gospel according to John, and that is God's sovereign, unconditional, undeserved election. And this is hope. There's so much hope in here. Do you, do you see how beautiful these two verses are? Because what, we, what we've seen here is that if salvation depended on our will, our desire there'd be no hope. We would just lay there at the bottom of the proverbial ocean, dead. But it wasn't your desire, and it wasn't your will that you be saved. It was God's. It was God's. It wasn't your will that you be drawn to Christ. It was God's. And if you sought God, and, and I hope you have, if you sought God, and if you've come to see that your only hope for salvation is in Jesus Christ alone, and I pray that you have, it's because despite your rebellion, it's because despite your sin, despite your resistance, and every resistance that the flesh nature would have against God, He loved you. He loved you. And so He sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true light, and by grace, He lovingly drew you to Him. Opening your eyes so that by grace you may see, that you may believe, that you may find life in Christ. If you've sought God, it's because He loved you and sought you first. And if you're thinking that that means, well... Okay, God is the one who's sovereign over election and salvation and all those things, so I don't need to go out and witness, uh, which is a great thing because I'm so sick of witnessing. I've grown so discouraged from witnessing. Think again. Because Romans 10.14 says this. It says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? 
See, God hasn't just ordained the end, that being election. He's also ordained the means to the end. And in His wisdom, in His sovereign wisdom, He has decreed that hearing the Gospel shared would be the means by which He would draw people to faith in Christ. Now obviously there's a mystery here that we can't fully resolve, but nevertheless our responsibility is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation and to urge others to do the same. I had an interesting conversation with the wife of a, of a friend this week. We had dinner, Christina and I had dinner with uh, a friend and his wife, and um, he, you know we were sharing life stories, and I said, you know, I, I used to be a stockbroker, but you know, I did it for a while, but I, I didn't really like it because I'm really not much of a salesman. And his wife said, well, you must really not like evangelism then. And I said, well, I don't, think that salvation is in my hands. I think that my responsibility is to share the gospel and to leave the results with God because verse 13 says that those who are children of God were born not of the blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. My responsibility then is not to convince them because I can't. My responsibility is to share the gospel and to pray for them and to leave the results in God's hands. And that's true of all of us. Every single one of us. Our responsibility is to repent and believe in Christ and to urge people to do the same. And if you've never believed, you've heard the testimony of John the Apostle, you've seen the testimony of John the Baptist, you have the light of nature, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? What is your verdict? If you believe, praise God and and, and thank God. It's because God is working in you. So what are you waiting for? Be reconciled to God through Christ. Don't wait. Don't wait. And if you struggle with your faith, if you struggle with believing, ask God plead with them to help you. And if you sincerely ask him that and sincerely seek him with all of your heart, he will. He will. But if you're in the light, if you're in the true light today, it's because God brought you into the light. And he did it with a purpose. Peter says this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, here we go, we're coming into a purpose clause now, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you have put your trust, your faith for salvation in Christ alone, I pray that you would also see it as your highest priority in life to do this. To follow the example of Peter. To follow the example of Paul. To follow the example of John the Baptist. To witness. To proclaim the excellencies of him. The vast 
riches of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness, the excellencies of him who delivered you from darkness and brought you into his marvelous light. Here's the truth. You can't convince somebody to believe. So don't grow discouraged with evangelism because you can't convince someone to believe, but God can. God can. So leave the results in his hands. And you just worry about being faithful to what he has not only called you to do, but he has equipped you to do, to go into the world and to share the gospel, to share the good news of grace and mercy and redemption in Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that the gospel is your power unto salvation for all who will believe. And we pray, Lord, that we would have the grace and the conviction and the courage to go forth into the world as you have instructed us to do, to make disciples to preach the gospel, but also give us the wisdom to leave the results in your hands, that we might not boast in anything but Christ and his love for us. Thank you that you sent Jesus to bear our sin, and thank you for calling us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Give us purpose in life with this, Lord. Give us motivation to do good works that those in the darkness may see our good works and not think highly of us, but that they would see their need for you. Give us perseverance with evangelism and wisdom to be faithful to what you've called us to do with a recognition that on our own there's nothing we can do except strive to be faithful to what you have called us to do. But we pray, Lord, that you would produce a harvest from our good works for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.